State theatres built of marble proclaim these relationships are eternal. This is how the world is, as did our Victorian commercial theatres. The rich and powerful enter through the ornate portals and sit close to the stage. The poor troop in round the back, climb uncarpeted stairs and watch from high up, safely out of the way. Hardwired into the design of our theatre will be the belief that everyone is of equal value, that nothing and no one is here forever. The proportions will be humane, the materials elemental, wood, glass, metal, stone. They splinter, they wear, they rust, they can be replaced, as we all can, as we all will be. This is Seven Stages, a podcast from the stage sponsored by Audible, and that is a quote from a speech given by David Lamb back in 2002. He was fundraising to transform the Young Vic, which was a crumbling ex-butcher's shop near Waterloo Station, into the emblematic building it's become. David was the Young Vic's artistic director for almost 20 years, and in that time he transformed the landscape of British theatre, ensuring international collaboration, community outreach, welcoming people into the building and sending them out into the world to continue the good work. I spoke to David a couple of weeks ago, just before the kind of coronavirus shutdown, when time seemed to have a different quality. But we met because he's just released his autobiography, as if by chance. Even if the productions he mentions are no longer happening, you can still buy the book, and it's really, really wonderful. In it, he describes beautifully, almost kind of novelistically, his life from his childhood as a gay, Jewish, theatre and poetry-obsessed boy, growing up in apartheid South Africa, troubled by his parents' fractious marriage, to his first performances as a stage magician, feigning sickness to avoid national service, shouting matches with David Mamet, observing possession rituals in Zimbabwe while researching his acclaimed ethnography, he talks about moving to London, meeting his longtime partner Nicholas Wright, renovating and running the Young Vic. We didn't have time to cover all of that, but we did start with a very strange family connection to Carrie Grant. Just to get one thing out of the way, is it true you're related to Carrie Grant? <laughs> no, sadly, <laughs> sadly. You know, for years, if I was in a bookshop and happened to see the celebrity bookshop, I'd look for a Cary Grant biography, looking for the one which would prove that what my grandmother said was true. <laughs> so what was it she said? What she claimed? Uh, she claimed that her mother had, was related, in other words, she was related to a cousin, I think it was, of Cary Grant's, right. or of Cary Grant's mother. I mean, the thing I loved about it is it was so unnecessarily bizarre <laughs> <laughs> I mean it must have come for something that's something yeah. but actually as it turned out none of it was true <laughs> it's a yeah. sudden running joke of yeah. course fortunately he is one of the you know great movie actors of all time yeah, um, yeah. there's plenty of movies to watch while um, <laughs> while regretting that my grandmother's curious fantasy was totally untrue <laughs> so the interview proper begins with um, the beginning so what what was the first show you remember seeing? I think the first show I remember seeing, one which I have a, a visual memory of, is um, a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in a park in Cape Town where I grew up. And most of the directors who worked there were English people who were brought out. I think that's true. And there was an actor-director called Leslie French 
you had you had quite a big reputation, not a major reputation, but a reputation mm. in in the, in this country in the UK, who came out and directed shows and acted in them, and in this case he played the part of Bottom, and he mm. was a very short man, and I can see him now doing the die 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 yeah. uh, bit of it, and just thinking. It was kind of uncontainably funny. Um, <laughs> and it was, again, you know, if I saw it now, I'd probably think... I don't know what I think about it. It's yeah, not what I yeah, think about it. Yeah. But it was very, very funny. I, rem- I remember that. I remember that quite well. And uh, Menaville, as you mentioned, is, you know, a really interesting place. And it was, you know, from its beginning in the 50s, was non-segregated as a space. Was it a kind of political act to attend, do you remember? I think that would be putting it a bit strong, though that, that it was a political act to, to. I don't know that. I don't. You know, obviously, I, I mean, when I, I won mostly when I was very young, mm. and but but certainly the people who ran it and the other theatres that they were associated with were oppositional. Mm. Were you know, without question, uh, oppositional, and the idea that. Theatre should be segregated, or in fact that any part of one's life should be segregated, was uh, anathema. Was you know it was obviously wrong. Mm. Which is not to say that they and my family and me didn't live comfortably within that contradiction. We did. Seems from from the book that your kind of awareness of that political landscape of South Africa and in fact global politics. That came quite early on. You seem to have had all these kind of intense discussions with your dad late at night and talking about politics, global politics. Very, yeah, very, very much so. I mean, uh, global is probably putting it a bit wide. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's still very alive to me that experience of growing up in a circumstance which you feel is wrong, um, unjust, mm-hmm. um, and that that compromises everything that you. Do I mean it happened to be within apartheid South Africa? People growing up in this country, um, uh, unhappy or distressed by inequalities of class or of power and so on, might feel exactly the same thing. And if you find a way of making yourself up through the system, then you get caught up in all, or potentially caught up in, in contradictions as the way you live and what you believe and what you're trying to achieve and yeah. what you and the compromises that you may or may not decide to make and so on. Um, I mean, my father was um, first generation, um, born in South Africa. Um, his parents came from Europe, came from Lithuania. But I mean, within our milieu. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, political engagement was it was taken for granted, and it sounds like it wasn't necessarily a very easy marriage. Your mum and your dad, and and there's a line in your book which struck me, and I just wanted you to kind of explain it a bit, maybe expand on it. Overhearing grown-ups quarrel in the next room is how theatre begins. Yeah, now most theatres are two rooms, and you sit in one room, and on the, the other room, which is slightly higher up and lit in a peculiar way. There are people <laughs> quarrelling uh, about one thing or another, uh, whether it's you know the state of England or um, whatever else they may choose to um, to, to get unhappy about. Look, it's a very early memory of, of mine, and I'm sure of, of many people um, who were brought up in houses where the um, acoustic separation between rooms was less than perfect. Is to hear other people's distress when you can't understand it. And any sign of unhappiness 
appears to threaten the viability of the whole social unit. I have observed amongst friends, people who work in in theatre or in film or in music, that sometimes the desire to entertain, to bring people together, to make people laugh, goes deeper than merely having discovered that that's a way of living their lives. And that the impulse to bring people together, to make people smile, to find a way of resolving conflict can begin in a person very, very, very early in their life. And and I do see young people usually, oh, starting nine, 10, 9, 10, 11, I mean, probably not younger than that, but look for ways to mediate between their parents. There's something in that, I think. Well, interesting as well, because your first... So this is the second question, which is what was the first show you worked on? But interestingly for you, that early stuff was magic. And I've, I always think that there are a lot of people who seem to be attracted to magic because it offers you the resolution. You know, you, there's no loose ends. There's no mystery if you're the magician. It's the answer to everything in the world. Yeah, no, I think there's a, a lot on that, in that. It's, yeah, it's a metaphor for making the impossible possible. Mm. Um, and, and this was young, so you, this was pro- probably the first performance you were doing was sort of entertain those children and you were an assistant right. in Panto, yeah. uh, Abenaza's right. assistant, I think, were you? Yes, I was. In a, in a, yes, I was. There was the first show I was involved with. The, the actor playing Abenaza in uh, Aladdin was not very good at doing magical tricks and um, and I was got in as a kid and at, probably as a joke as a sort of you yeah, know, yeah, you know yeah. it was a very 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 young um, magician um, it's a cheap laugh isn't it in a way yes yes um, but that was I think it was the first show I mean apart from sort of kids liking about in the garden mm-hmm. I think that was the first thing that had an audience that um, expected entertainment of a certain quality so you know aside from the magic stuff there were shows at your local school and I think you were Mephistopheles is that right in, in Faust yes that's, that's right it was sort of important for me because I must have been 15 or 16 and it was a, you know it's a complicated text and yeah. trying to make sense of that even at that level was um, was good it was good for me because you spent in the book you, there's a lot of time that you spend grappling Later with Faustus, isn't it? With um, which Jude Law was going to be involved in in Marlowe's Faustus, in yes. Marlowe's Faustus, yes. and then oh, there's a fantastic story featuring David Mamet. <laughs> Tell me what happened there. I, I worked with Jude on another show. We did a um, uh, before I was running the Young Vic, I directed a show. Just um, um, pity she's a whore with Jude, with Jude. And then one day Jude said to me, "I'd like to play uh, Faustus in Doctor Faustus," and. Uh, we were okay, let's do it. But then I read it and I struggled with it because though much of the play, Acts 1, 2 and 5 in particular, are wonderful. I mean, amazing. Um, very, very intellectually challenging. You're trying to work what exactly is this guy talking about and what is the religious political context within which this play is a radical play because it was a radical play. Mm. Trying to understand that, one challenge. And then you get to scenes 3 and 4 which are broken up and um, maybe partly written by other people and in a in very different style. I didn't know how to do those. Um, I couldn't work out how to do those. And then I had the idea of commissioning a writer of 
you know, perhaps equal or, or, or comparable intellectual weight um, to write new Acts 3 and 4. And um, there are not many people who, who fit that bill. But one of them, I thought, was David Mamet, who uh, the plays he'd written around that time were you know, the best plays, in my view, of, of, of the time, or amongst the best plays of the time. And um, I met him with uh, Jude. We had a meeting with him, and he said, uh, yeah, great, immediately. He, I mean, I suppose he had time to think about it, but he went, yeah, great, I'll do that. And then, um, and we were very pleased, great, okay, so we'll have Acts 1, 2, and 5 by Marlowe and Acts 3 and 4 by Mallet. <laughs> what could be wrong with that? And then, quite soon after, I got a call from him saying, I, I have a better idea. Uh, I've got a better idea. Um, I've been thinking about this, and I think I could write you a whole new play on this theme. Uh, which you could direct and Jude could play. And again, you go, oh, you know, what, wow, wonderful. Mammoth's um, um, play, Edmund, I mean, it's nothing like fast at all, but it's a, it's a really wonderfully complex and subtle and um, powerful and upsetting uh, portrait of a man sort of coming to pieces. You go, oh, okay, let's have one of those. Um, and the months went by and the months went by and we didn't receive anything from him. And then eventually we did get a play from him called Dr. Faustus. And, you know, whatever one may think about his recent work, he has written wonderfully. But this was not one of the wonderful ones. Um, it was not a very good play. It must just be a thing you have to deal with as an artistic director that you pick up the phone to a very famous, quite opinionated playwright and you say, we're not doing your play. Yeah. It must take quite a lot of resolve. It, bravery. It, it may do, but there is no alternative. I mean, that you know you can't send an email. Um, you know you can't send a text. And you know you, it's point, you can talk to his agent, but that's not going to be any easier. Um, in fact, you might anticipate it being more, more difficult. Um, but, but, I mean, Mamet shouted at me. <laughs> he was very cross. <laughs> he was very, very cross. And I can remember that. It's, it's, it's funny. It's one of the things that made it possible for me to write the book with any notes. I can remember, maybe everybody can, I don't know. But I can remember exactly where I was in different, my, different experiences. I can see myself now standing in a particular place going, oh, my God, all right, do it now. You know, thinking it's never going to be easier. I mean, I could wait till tomorrow, but it'll be just as bad as today. Yeah. Do it now. I'm making the phone call and standing there while the man um, shouted at me. It's okay. God. Um, very very um, um, eloquent shouting. <laughs> I bet, yeah. <laughs> you should have transcribed it. I should have. a good play. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> And then this is so after school, um, but before university, there was well national service to reckon with, which you you know talk about. It's quite a kind of shocking thing in the book because it seems so unavoidable, and you're just desperately trying to find a way out of it. So it would have been from what you say, eleven months training, and then a month a year for ten years. That was that was that. what people had to do. It varied. From time to time, depending on how serious the wars were that Sartre was involved in, usually secretly, but um, at that point it was it, it was eleven months, and then and then a month a year, yeah. And but you you did manage to get out of it, and I did, and yeah. went back. You studied acting and yeah. theatre at university, University yeah. of Cape Town. It sounds like you you were protesting a lot, you were marching a lot. Apartheid uh, got worse before it got better. It got crazier. I, I, Around the period that I was at university and, and subsequently, uh, right until the end of apartheid, 
um, it, it, the, the amount of um, military oppression uh, grew and grew and grew. It was, it was, it was, it was really bad. And uh, the university I was at was one of the liberal universities. There were other universities which were not, which were... Uh, it's complex and full of contradictions, but yeah. there were other universities which were more allied with the state uh, at the time. But, but the University of Cape Town was sort of famously a hotbed of, 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 of radicals and, and left-wing and, and anti-apartheid activists, and I easily fell into that company. Yeah. And it strikes me that pretty much since then there's not been a piece of work that you've written, you've directed, you've produced that hasn't been a response to a critical or horrific or dangerous moment in, in history or, or in the politics of a particular society? Well, interesting thing to say. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have volunteered that. Um, I'll have to think about whether that's so. Um, I, I suppose there's a part of my breath that I um, go back to quite a lot and I, I quote briefly in the book. And in that poem, he sort of says, in my view, almost everything you need to know about um, how to make theatre now. But one of the things he says, and it is very, very simple, but is but is profound, I think, which is that when you're in the theatre, when you're in a theatre, when you are sitting in a theatre, you are also sitting in the world, um, and that's true. <laughs> that's true. You're not outside the world. You are in the world. Um, you know, you, you, you made me think I, I, I've, been, I've just come back from a um, month of, of, of uh, producing a show in New York and I met somebody um, um, who was asked me, you know, what are you doing there? And I said, oh, I ran a theatre called The Young Vic. And she said, oh I, oh, I know The Young Vic. I love The Young Vic. And people said, I'm always a little bit anxious because, especially if they're Americans, because they're usually thinking of another theatre of a similar name. Uh, <laughs> and she said, oh, I love The Young Vic. I saw a wonderful production of a play by Noel Coward there. And I went, no, that wasn't yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That wasn't us. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't remember all the shows we produced over 20 years, but if it was by Noel Coward, that wasn't us. It wasn't us. on The <laughs> So the, the, where are we? Third question, I think this is... Um, what, what's your favourite show you've ever worked on? Which I know is an impossible question. You know, a couple, a couple you mentioned were v- View from the Bridge, Eva Van Hove's production. Um, Brit, Eva Van Hove, uh, first production of Eva Van Hove that we had in the UK, in fact. Simon Stone's Yerma and Jon Foster's I'm the Wind, which Patrice Sherrod directed. So um, let's talk about those productions. So I didn't, I didn't intend to, to direct, uh, to produce a play of Beyond Forces. What I did intend to do was produce a production of Patricia Rose. And yeah. when I started with Patrice, um, it, took, it took years and years and years. I mean, I took years to, for that production to come to um, fruition. He, he's one of those characters who just leaps off the page in the book. I mean, I, I, he just sounds like a man of quite extraordinary temperament in the way that you describe him. I mean, you want people who can only do stuff in the way that they can do it. And he sounds like one of those people demanding eight weeks of rehearsal instead of five, and he's got a very particular way of doing it. And very touchingly, movingly, you describe his funeral as well, because sadly he passed away a few years ago, I think. But the way Patrice wanted to work is the right way. Mm. You know, um, people sometimes talk about difficult directors. um, All directors, all good directors are are (laughs) difficult, and and it is in their difficulty... Um, that their interest lies. And then, uh, you know, another 
visionary um, Eva Van Hover. So, uh, you know, it seems like there's a, a theme in the book of your persistence and patience, I suppose, because these people, Simon Stone, you, you seem to be chasing him around Europe trying to get him to do a production for you. Eva Van Hover, his diary was booked up for years, but you you persisted. Yeah, but I mean, I don't, I never asked for any particular. Um, thanks for that. It, it, that was the, that was the job as I saw it. I mean, is yeah. to is to is to look for the best people or the people whose work I love and to and to and to bring them, you know, yeah. and to and to and to and to try and um, see what what would happen if 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 they work with us um, here now. Eva's a friend, and Eva's become a friend, and there's a different sort of relationship altogether. But initially, he was wary of this project, and 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 we've talked about it a lot over the over the subsequent years, and um, how how wary he was of taking taking this on and taking it on with a sort of funny little theatre in a um, <laughs> scrubby end of London. Um, but we had a very good time, and he did a remarkable production. And I think though, Evo, you know, turns out. More than almost any other director on the planet, I and mean, he goes from show to show to show. But I think yeah. we agree that his uh, view from the bridge is one of his one of his best. You know, you're talking about his wariness. Is that because it just didn't seem to be the sort of thing he would do? It wasn't the sort of thing he would do. Um, no, and he said. I remember an interview he gave to one of our distinguished newspapers. I've forgotten which one. Um, <laughs> uh, the FT, maybe. Um, where he said, um, "I don't really like Arthur Miller. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's very good. I well, don't the, like. I don't like his tone of voice." There's um, a great quote in the book where uh, he's like, "Well, it's just an Arthur Miller play, isn't well, it?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean that really um, wasn't what I wanted to hear. <laughs> um, Two thirds of the way through rehearsal, um, but that is, yeah. Well, I, you know, it's just an Arthur Miller play. That's all it is. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, thanks a bunch. Um, <laughs> So the next question is, what are you working on at the moment? And oh well, um, various things. I mean, my uh, production of the Inheritance is is playing on Broadway. Um, production of uh, the Jungle, which um, I did at the Olympic some years ago, but it's been around a lot in the West End and then in New York and then in San Francisco. That's coming back to St Anne's Warehouse in New York and then going to Washington. And then later in the year, uh, touring America, and I'm um, I'm very involved in that. I have a, another show which I'm not going to talk about, except to say I have another show which is which will touch wood. I'm, this is a very big piece of wood I'm touching, but <laughs> I think I mean we have a theatre, we have an actor. Um, we'll be on Broadway uh, in the in the in the fall, in what they call the fall, which yeah. I sh- got to stop calling the fall <laughs> uh, in, in in the autumn. I'm writing a, uh, I'm writing something else. I'm some distance into something else, and then there are various other things I'm doing. I mean, I I I um, I'm I'm busy. I'm doing lots of things. This is I mean, it's obviously very very good here because I think it it's. It, you know, it's partly the nature of the media in the UK or, or the, the uh, arts, press, whatever. But if you're not omnipresent, you kind of slightly disappear. But I think, I mean, it feels to me like the thing we need in British theatre right now is David Lamb. Um, you know, you spent your life kind of championing internationalism, shared human experiences... Are you coming back to us at all? Well, it's nice, <laughs> nice of you to say so. Um, I'm, I'm, I am working on a big, a big project. I mean, a big. It's a really big one, and it's 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 um, 
it's it's across Europe. It and it's um, part of it. Uh, only part of its purpose and, and I hope meaning is that it is it involves many European countries, um, including um, this one. I still think of us as a, mm. as, a, as a as a part of Europe. Um, it's it's a big old thing, uh, which um, there are a whole there are many of us involved in in producing. It's not a show. It won't take place in a theatre, but it will be a big event involving many many different organisations. And I hope you're able to talk about it uh, in a in a in a few months' time. Right. Uh, 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 on, on the other hand, you know, I mean, the way you put that, um, I'm not sorry to be disappearing in some senses. There is. There is a side of the job which is to do with um, the sort of popularity stakes um, and the celebrity stakes and so on, which I didn't enjoy and um, seemed to me a diversion, but uh, and a distraction. But 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 it's hard not to engage in it, and I'm really pleased not to have to. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 in the past, if I was. Defending myself as an artistic director, I was defending my theatre, which you need to do, um, and I, I'm not sorry not to, not to have to do that. I'm pleased to be able to just sort of dissolve into the atmosphere, but um, from that perspective, at least. But I am making new things. Yeah, I, I, I loved the job I did. Uh, every aspect of it. There was nothing involved with the running of a theatre that I tried to avoid. Other people did aspects of it much better than I did it, but I was uh, involved to some degree uh, with with all aspects of it, and that was great. But having handed over my keys two years ago now, there are a number of things I'm glad I'll never be asked to do again. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. Well, um, no, no, no. no. <laughs> um, so the next question is, what was the show that got away? So, you know, this might be something that you turned down or, or even as an audience member, something that you missed. There was um, a show I put really a, a, a lot of time and, and, and thought into with uh, Deborah Warner and Fiona Shaw, uh, as, the, as did they. I mean, we worked really hard to try and get that to happen. And for one reason or another, it sort of got away from us. And there was another one, sadly, also with Fiona, where I asked her to um, have a look at a, a kid's book, um, Horrid Henry, which I like very much. Again, just guessing. I mean, Fiona's yeah. a wonderful director and a great actress and a, and a, and a good friend. Um, but I just thought, oh, you know, and she got it. She she read the book. And she didn't think, you know, this is in some way uh, <laughs> impugning my um, my my ability. Uh, and, and actually, when we did work for young people, we always had the best, you know, the the top team. It was always top team working yeah. on, on on the on the young uh, work aimed at families or at younger people. And and Fiona did it absolutely brilliant couple of weeks work on this and did a showing which was too good as it turned out because the people who owned the copyright came along to see it and you know well taking it court I suppose saying this <laughs> never mind but something like this happened that they looked at it and went wow um wow that could be good um we'll do it ourselves and, right 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 and they didn't want us to do it so that that got away which is a pity because that could have been that could have been really good and there were there were Others as well. There was a show I was trying to land, which was a, a show by Anna Devere Smith. And I'd seen it, and I'd read it, and I'd talked to her, and I'd like to have brought it in. Eventually, 
for one reason or another, dates, money, whatever. It wasn't going to work. And, and I had another little show that I was um, working on in our studio in the Maria we were doing. And at a certain point, woke up in the middle of the night and I went, I'm being completely stupid. How lucky I am that we, that we can't do the Under the Beer Smith. We'll put that in the main house. And that show was The Jungle. Right. Wow. Mm. That's, yeah. Well, this is interesting because I want to talk about this as well, which is coincidence, because quite front and centre there are these big coincidences in the book. I mean, some, you know, some of them are smaller than others, but one of them is you co-written a play with Carol Churchill and there's, it's a slightly tense day and you sort of go off and you wander around and you pick up a, an LP, I think this is, of... It's a long time ago, it was a um, cassette. A cassette, that's it, of, of um, Charles, so Charles Ive, Robert Browning overtures. Correct. And you think, oh, I don't know, this piece, Robert Browning, what's it got to do with it? You come back in to kind of make your piece with, with Carol and, and she quotes Robert Browning. I know, that's a very odd thing. And happened. then there was another one where you're, you're meeting a, you visit a, a Palestinian journalist, you know, you've got this meeting all set up and he's late and you're wondering why he's late. He comes in and says, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was just finishing this fantastic book. I couldn't get enough of it. And you say, oh, well, what's the book? And he says, oh, it's by this guy, David Lamb. And he's reading your ethnography of Zimbabwe and, and spiritualism. There. And, you know, there's another element of that, which is when you go to Iceland, you're slightly, in a fun way, you know, in a lighthouse way, gently mocking their belief in the little people, the elves. Uh, and they build their roads around where they think the little people live. So I want to know, do you believe in the little people, basically? <laughs> no, sadly. I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there are any little people, but I do believe in people's capacity to imagine the little people. You know, I spent years of my life um, thinking about the religious and spiritual beliefs of people in, the, in Zimbabwe. Um, I'm very I- I- interested in... In, in this imagination, individual imagination, sort of social imagination, the way people imagine their lives are and what constrains them. The, the, the moment with Carol that I've written about in the book is different, though, because that is thought transference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, or it's nothing, or it's, or it's chance, it's coincidence. Yeah. The, 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 the reason I think it's thought transference, um, and I, I, I talked to Carol about it again uh, uh, after she'd read the book, um, is that it wasn't me. I was thinking about Robert Browning because of for the reasons you said. But when I walked up to Carol in the foyer of the Birmingham Rap, um, it was Carol who said to me, why am I thinking this? Yeah. Why am I thinking this? Um, <laughs> um, so, hey, so it had um, kind of popped into her head as unbidden and... Um, you know, there's very interesting thinking about what people call the subconscious. Um, about what's going on below one's capacity to immediately articulate it. Um, and we could spend many happy hours on that subject. But it does seem that we are taking in infinitely vast quantities of information all the time, which the brain is editing. I'm going, you're interested. Just, you know, forget about that. Mm. Just stay with that. You're, talk, you're talking about your life in the theatre. Forget about what's coming through the window. But actually, there's a lot coming through the window. Yeah. Um, there's an enormous amount, you know, the sunset that's happening way over there and the colour of the clouds and the silhouette of the buildings. It's all coming in. Mm. Somehow we can sometimes use that. Can't explain it. Well, exercise your imagination now. Question six is, if you have an empty space and an unlimited budget, 
what are you going to stage now? I've produced a lot of shows in theatres and I'm not going to do that until and unless there is the specific show that I think I can do better than anybody else for whatever reason, which is the principle I, I operated on at the Young Vic. I only want us to do the work we can do better. If somebody else can do it better, they should do it. Mm. Well, I'm writing. Um, and, and when I was running the theatre, I didn't... I mean, 20 years, I didn't write. I, you know, yeah. the odd thing is I got the job very unexpectedly. And I, my memory is that I was halfway through um, a version of uh, Philoctetes by um, Sophocles. Mm-hmm. And I got the job... Um, and I went away on holiday for a couple of weeks and came back and I started the job. And my memory was that I'd left it half completed in a drawer. Well, a, a couple of months ago, for whatever reason, I opened that drawer and I found I'd actually got to the end of it. Oh, right. It's very rough and I'm not saying it's any good. But I, um, but between putting that in the drawer and coming back to it 20 years later, I didn't write anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wrote a million bits of pieces for the papers and so on. Yeah, I didn't yeah. write anything of any... Substance, but I, I I I wrote the book and I'm I'm writing something else and that that I'm very preoccupied with that. Um, it, it, I, there there isn't a sort of um, producing hole in my consciousness at the moment, or whatever I've got is is taken up with what I'm trying to write. Yeah. Um, but when I think of the show, or somebody kindly suggested to me, yeah, I'll be happy to do it. And then the final question. What's the one show you'd happily watch on a loop for eternity? I don't want to watch a show um, for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Heaven is the opposite of theatre. <laughs> um, um, and the whole thing about theatre is it, it ends, thank God, it ends. I mean, even if it's the inheritance and it lasts seven hours. Yeah. Music, on the other hand, um, I was you know, even thinking about your question. There is some music that I think I could probably listen to for... A long time. Eternity is a very long time. But um, yeah. that I, that, that I, there, there, there is certain music I listen to over and over and over and over again. And it feels Bach preludes and, and also the uh, Shostakovich preludes, um, piano preludes, which um, especially one recording of them, uh, the Keith Jarrett recording of the Shostakovich preludes, oh, I listen to over and over and over and over again. And the Glenn Gould um, Bach uh, preludes. Actually... Um, Glenn Gould playing anything by Bach, I just hear it over and over and over again. And and I listen to it as if I'd never heard it before. Oh, no, it's not quite true, because the more I listen to it, the, the more there is in it. So you, it's it's as if you never heard it before, but you're hearing um, progressively more and more. Interestingly mm. as well, you, you, you said to me that heaven is a place that you don't want or need theatre. And I think that sort of went some way to summing up your approach to theatre, which is seems to me that the theatre you make is theatre that we need and you know if there is a heaven who knows it'll be a place where we don't need it anymore oh yeah um yeah I, it's it's interesting that you say that tim i mean you know it was always guessing that that other people would need it as much as i felt i needed it you know i don't want to be so naive about it i i wanted every house to be full um but the the gamble was that it would be full because it, my need had plugged into it's only a four hundred seat house, you know, and we're living in a very big city. But that we, there would be enough people who would have the same response as as I would. 
And as you say, when I get to heaven, we, we will all just be sitting around going, isn't this great? <laughs> <laughs> um, we didn't deserve it, but nonetheless, isn't it great? Yeah. And we won't be going to the Samuel French catalogue um, trying to work out which plays haven't been done recently. <laughs> David Land, what a man! As I mentioned, Seven Stages is sponsored by Audible, a resource which I think is more valuable than ever while everything else seems to be on pause. As well as a huge range of audiobooks, they've got a fantastic selection of audio theatre productions, including Dennis Kelly's gut-wrenching monologue, Girls and Boys, starring Carey Mulligan. I saw this at the Royal Court in 2018, and it works so, so well as an audio play. I don't want to give too much away, but it follows a woman as she kind of describes her life and gets it gets more and more intense as it goes on. Uh, you can listen for free with a 30-day trial at audible.co.uk forward slash girls and boys. After 30 days, prices start at $7.99 a month and it renews automatically. That's all for now. Head to thestage.co.uk for updates and advice on coronavirus, and I'll be back in a fortnight. Thanks for listening. Bye.